Welcome to Optimizing, the podcast about leading Africa's digital future. I'm Professor Barry Dwalatsky. And I'm Karen Gammy. Season two has the theme, Receiving and Passing the Baton. We're in conversation with people who have shaped or will shape Africa's digital future. Each conversation draws on the metaphor of life as a relay race. Our guests will talk about how they received the baton, who and what influenced them as they started life's journey. We will then discuss their own journey, how they nurtured and grew the baton in their hands. Finally, we will ask them about what it is that they will pass on to the next generation of leaders and experts. Today, we are joined by Mteta Nyati. Mteta is an engineer, He's a business executive. He's a writer and a thought leader. And like any list of labels, none of these labels even begin to describe this truly extraordinary South African role model. His book, his autobiography, which was published in August 2019, shares his amazing story from growing up within a large and nurturing family in what was then the Trans Sky in the Eastern Cape, to his current role as chief executive of the company Altron. Mteta graduated in 1985 as a mechanical engineer. He was the only black engineering student in his year at the then University of Natal. Mteta worked as an engineer at Afrox and then at NAMPAC. In 1996, he joined IBM South Africa, where he soon made his mark. He was being groomed to become the head of the local IBM operation, and it involved him spending a period of time with his family working in Paris. In 2004, he was selected to participate in the very prestigious Yale World Fellows Program at Yale University in the USA. In 2008, he left IBM to become the chief executive of Microsoft South Africa, where, amongst other major achievements, he oversaw the development of its groundbreaking Black Empowerment Program, or BEE program. In 2014, he left Microsoft to join MTN, and in 2015, he became the chief executive of MTN South Africa. In 2017, he joined Altron as their chief executive officer. In every one of these steps in his journey, Mteta has made a huge impact on the company he has led. Read the book if you want to know what he did and how he did it. He is an incredibly effective and inspirational leader. In 2013, while Mteta was head of Microsoft South Africa, he and I were named as joint recipients of the prestigious IITPSA, South African IT Personality of the Year Award. Reading his book, I now feel even more honored to have shared this award with such an amazing person. Mteta, towards the end of your book, you include a quote from Idawu Koyen Ikan, who says, 
show me the heroes that the youth of a country look up to and I will tell you the future of your country. This is such a wonderful quote because it sums up my intention in doing this series of podcasts. I call this series Leading Africa's Digital Future and it aims to showcase the heroes in the digital economy that I hope our current generation of future African digital leaders will look up to and take on as role models. My co-host Karen is one of those in this generation of future leaders and experts. The metaphor in this episode is life as a relay race. And Teta, can you talk a bit about your heroes and those who pass the baton to the young Mteta Nyati. Uh, thank you so much, Barry, for that uh, lovely and uh, good introduction. Uh, uh, truly, if I can reflect back to the time when I won together with you the, the IT personality of the year, I was equally uh, very, very happy to be sharing that uh, recognition with you, uh, considering the great work that you continue to do uh, in South Africa around ICT. Uh, you are truly, truly one of those people that I look up to. And, and I was very, very happy to be sharing that recognition with you. Just going back to my career, uh, I'll just share maybe two or three people I consider being uh, my heroes. Uh, the people that really shaped uh, how I ended up doing things uh, throughout my life. Uh, the first one is a gentleman by the name of uh, Lot Ndlovu. Uh, Lot Ndlovu, he used to be a senior human capital uh, manager at Afrox. Before I even joined Afrox, uh, he passionately uh, rallied and convinced the leadership of Afrox that they need to start thinking about the changes that will be, he saw coming further down in terms of the horizon. That was uh, in, in around 1980s. And he was seeing that somewhere in the future, uh, a company like uh, Afrox would have to have and start to reflect uh, the demographics of the country. So he convinced that organization to go and, and hire uh, white female and also black uh, employees at senior levels of the organization. So they I ended up being uh, somebody who benefits out of that action because I was recruited and got a scholarship from uh, Afrox. Uh, I ended up joining Afrox and working for them for eight years. And the person who made that happen was Lotenlov. And one of his, uh, when I joined the company uh, three, four years later, when he, uh, <laughs> he was uh, welcoming me into the company, he told me, uh, make sure that you don't mess up. 
know, that was a, you know, he said that jokingly, but he was actually uh, very, very serious uh, because uh, all of his work, uh, how I penned up, how I ended up showing up within uh, Afrox would impact how the rest of the company would judge him because they had taken this action because of him. So that's the first guy. The second one is uh, Neil Greenfield. He's a, a Jewish gentleman who I found uh, within uh, Afrox. And joining in an environment where you had nobody who looked like you at all. And now you are here and uh, you get assigned to managers and generally managers are reluctant to have you you know nobody really wants to have you as they are uh, as their employee because you are so different from them they don't know how to manage you uh, and and he raised his hand O'Neill, and and welcomed me as part of his team uh, i have never felt so welcomed and so included in any environment and he is truly somebody who shaped my thinking and, and also what I continue to do today uh, around diversity and inclusion. Uh, that was done by Neil Greenfield. He changed everything. But more than that, he also helped shape the, uh, just uh, think about my professionalism when it comes to work, you know, uh, getting things done. You know, he guided me in those early years, those early three or four years of my career. He shaped my thinking. Then the other person, the last person I would like to mention, because there are many of them, is a, is a lady by the name of Mpo Litlape, who, who recruited me into IBM and continues to, up to today, uh, to be my mentor. And she is there, continues to guide me, and uh, she holds me accountable. You know, after three or four months, we connect with Mpo, and she asks how things are going, and uh, make sure that uh, you know, asks the tough questions, and and that's the kind of people that you need in your life. So these are not the only three people that I have throughout my life. I've got many such people, but I chose to mention only these three, uh, Barry. And um, it's a very clear reading your book that you've, and we'll come back to talk a bit more about mentorship, but you've, you've sought out or mentors have sought you out. And that has played a very big part in your life, I can see. Um, just a, a small aside and having read your book, uh, something that I discovered is that in 1980, in your matric year, you won the National Science Olympiad which is an amazing achievement. And you had the opportunity to attend the International Science Olympiad in London. And I found this particularly interesting because one of my previous guests in this podcast season won the Science Olympiad. And when we spoke to him, he said that that opportunity to travel to London for this international event was life changing. And uh, like you, he came from a small South African town. He had parents who placed great emphasis on education, like you, and he sent him, and his parents had sent him to a good local school. And um, although this isn't a quiz show, 
um, do you happen to know who this other amazing South African leader is? <laughs> I'm saying it is not a quiz show, but uh, but certainly you are quizzing me here. <laughs> so uh, the good thing uh, is that there are not many people uh, in South Africa of all races that uh, uh, had the opportunity to represent their countries in the International uh, Science Week, uh, Science uh, Olympiad. Uh, so my guess, uh, uh, again, it's a guess because we never discussed this, is probably uh, the Vice Chancellor of the University of Johannesburg. Uh, his name is Prof. Tsilisi Marwala. Uh, I suspect it's him. Uh, Spot on. <laughs> yes, but it was interesting when we spoke to Chalitzi how important he saw that opportunity and it, it inspired him to go into teaching and education and research. And obviously your inspiration, like his, was to go into engineering, but your life turned out to be more in leadership of business rather than leadership of an academic institution. Um, could you just maybe reflect for a minute on how important that opportunity was to travel to London and at that stage in your life? Was it important? It was so important, uh, so, so, so important, uh, Barry. Uh, I come from a, a small village. <laughs> Uh, here you have someone who, uh, in the trans guy uh, at that time, you don't have too much diversity. Uh, you didn't have too much diversity. So the people that I was interfacing with were largely people who, who look uh, like me, black, you know. Uh, so you get to an environment where now uh, you are part of a delegation and, and in the term of this delegation representing South Africa, uh, you are, you know, maybe blacks uh, just 10 to 15 percent of that delegation. And the rest is, is people who have never connected with, uh, never even thought that you would. Uh, so just those dynamics uh, was the first one that uh, it, it changes your life. Uh, but you also realize that you know, you come from an environment where your education was supposed to make you not to ever be able to compete at this level. And here you are competing uh, with some of the best uh, of other races uh, uh, coming from the so-called uh, uh, inferior education. So again, uh, it's, it, it provided me with, with a big important lesson that that uh, regardless of how people think and uh, want things to be like uh, when it comes to you, uh, it's all about the choices that you make. You know, uh, you, we cannot, you can continue to blame people or you can rise above your circumstances and create the kind of future that you want. Mm. And, and it all depends on choices uh, like the hard work. Well, that's the second thing. Uh, the third one, going to London. Uh, I was interviewed by the local newspaper called Daily Dispatch uh, in, in based in East London, and and the article that came up then was saying that uh, you know I wanted to become a doctor, <laughs> so 
going to London, that's what I said. You know, I wanted to be a doctor, and that was my chosen uh, field. Uh, but it was very clear to me, uh, being exposed to what I was exposed to, the different careers, different technologies, uh, I, it was very clear to me that I would make a big mistake if I chose the route of medicine. Uh, and, and engineering became the one thing that I was very clear, I have to go the engineering route. Uh, more because of how easy it was for me, you know, science, uh, I didn't have to apply myself too much in science and maths. Uh, whereas to get the same kind of, uh, of, of marks in, in biology, uh, that's what you used to call it at the time, uh, it requires so much work. So I, being the lazy person that I am, I went with what came natural to me. Uh, what came natural was uh, the, the science and the math side. And, and hence I chose the, the route of engineering. And I'm also a practical person. So combining all of those things, it became clear that I need to be going that route. So yes, it, it, it changed everything. I was the first guy uh, from my family to be to go abroad. So, so for for my family, it was a big thing. <laughs> it was a really big thing. Yeah, I can I can actually well imagine. And I think those opportunities for young people when we talk about um, education and skills, it is important for young people to be exposed to those kind of life-changing opportunities and both for you and for Chilitzi it obviously um, uh, did what, what it was intended to do was was to really take young people from wherever they came in the world and give them a chance to see the world through another lens um, and you talk about and um, we, we kind of know that you studied engineering and uh, somewhere in your book, you note that engineers um, go on to make good CEOs. Um, your first few, your first two jobs were technical engineering jobs, and you seem, from reading in your book, to have enjoyed being an engineer and working as an engineer. I was wondering if you ever regret at this point in your life um, not staying in the more technical side of business. And um, could you also comment a bit on what it is about engineering education that makes people good CEOs? Yes, uh, so uh, growing up, I, I like to fix things. You know, I remember uh, my mom uh, had this shop that uh, she was an entrepreneur. Uh, by the way, she's the person that I also look up to. Uh, she 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 changed completely uh, our our family through the risk that she took in building up that shop of hers. That she through that shop she was able to take us through you know uh, to all the way up to university almost six uh, almost ten of of her children, and 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 for someone to be able to do that. Uh, it says a lot, you know. So, so I look up to him. Uh, so, so going back to though to your to your question, that do I do I regret? Uh, I don't regret at all. Uh, I 
I, I, I joined the engineering field largely because of I like uh, the problem solving uh, challenges that it presents to, to people. You are forever presented with challenges that you have to solve. And, and, and those skills, they never go away. <laughs> Your ability to do problem solving or coming up with solutions it does, it does not go away whether you are dealing with human problems or environmental problems or mechanical problems it doesn't matter you know so now i am doing leadership but i rely almost 60% uh, of what i do you know uh, it, it's it's analyzing the environment then coming up with uh, with uh, you know looking at the problems and then coming up with solutions uh, i still use my engineering uh, skills and and that is what i'm taking in almost all of the jobs that i go to you know i don't spend uh, you know months or go and hire consultants to figure out what is it that one needs to do in Altron, what is it that one needs to do uh, to fix uh, Microsoft or MTN. I don't do that. Other people spend thousands and millions on consultants. I don't do that. Uh, I, I, together with my teams, uh, we work together and mobilize our teams on the ground to come up with solutions. You know, who, who, who best can who knows what the issues are than the people that are working in your organization you know these are people that are interacting every day with customers they're listening they're hearing the frustration of customers and and why go to consultants instead of going to them and helping them to come up with solutions that can help us to address uh, the problems that the organization is facing so so the thing that I bring into almost all jobs is is what I was trained in, uh, being that engineer, you know, and and that is what probably makes us uh, to be able to be good uh, people, good good not just good good uh, good leaders, uh, the ability to understand issues, uh, the ability to connect the dots. Uh, the, big picture thinking strategic thinking and 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 being able to take the future and look at the future and bring it back here to today and say what is it that i need to do today in order for this organization to be ready for the future so i just want to jump in here and first you just you know say how how like incredible it is to hear you say all these things and i'm thinking just sort of like for myself if i look at my friends a lot of whom are are engineers even though they're not professional engineers they're working in either management consulting or as data scientists and and it's exactly that you know they have this propensity and capacity for truly kind of lateral thinking and to be able to just problem solve irrespective of the problem and so it's really refreshing to hear you talk um, sort of about your engineering uh, degree and sort of how it served you in this kind of more leadership role um, and you know I think there is the stereotype that that engineering students are you know really like narrow in their interests which is obviously not true and i think even in your writings it's pretty clear that the stereotype doesn't apply to you um and and you're interested in this thing that we obviously now like to refer to as the humanities so i'm kind of curious to understand uh when you were younger sort of did you read a lot uh, and if so what kind of books were you interested in reading at the time that then sort of shaped your your more sort of social understanding of the world you need to know what are you good at 
and what are the things that you are not good at. That self-awareness is what most of us are lacking. We don't know how much damage we are doing to others more because of how we lead because we are not aware we're not looking at ourselves in the mirror you know and the thing that i became aware of more from i guess looking at some of the people that i reported to and and some of those people it was terrible to working under them and i said i will never be like this and i realized that they were lacking the uh, people management side of things and they were like me engineers I then decided then that I need to read broadly in this space. And I've been reading up to today. I continue to read and read outside of my field uh, in the humanity space around leadership, around self-help, you know, looking at, at uh, biographies of, of people uh, that, that I, I look up to, and also spirituality you know and 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 that is so important that piece that i've just mentioned now you know my approach to leadership at the core is that we are all one you know <laughs> may seems look as it are ah, this looks like uh, you know what do you mean we are all one you know yes we we may look different in this life in this life that we are in here you know one is wearing a black skin another one a white skin another one something different you know uh, but at the core you know the thing that continues to exist that does not die that thing you know is different does not have color you know starting and if you are leading from that point you lead differently you start to know that the other part that part, that person there, he may or she may hate you, but at the core, you go back to being one, you know, as part of one. So it's that, it's those philosophies that have helped me to deal with some of the challenges that I'm facing uh, as I lead, you know. And, and the positions that I take are sometimes very difficult for other people to come in. So, for example, for example, uh, coming into an environment like Ultron, uh, one would think, ah, oh, the first thing that this guy is going to do as a black person, the black leader, is going to paint the whole company black, you know. To me, fairness, you know, fairness is probably one of the most important, in fact, not probably, it's one of my four values, fairness, you know. So it's important that we, uh, we identify and hire people the best person for the job. You cannot have a situation where the best person for the job happens to be white and say, ah, wrong color. No, the best person for the job, if it happens to be white, you hire that white person. You know, it's that thing. But how do you get to that point? It's the underpinnings that I have uh, when it comes to spirituality. And, and so, yes, to answer your question, I, I read a lot uh, and, and it's something that helps me to deal with the challenges that uh, I continue to face. But it starts from understanding that you've got a weakness in a specific area. And then you embrace that and you say, okay, I'm going to work on it. And I continue to work on it up to today. And in fact, uh, one of the things I really love is the way you use social media. And I follow you on social media. And I love the fact that you, you put out um, uh, uh, thoughts of the day, let's call it. You, you find inspirational quotes, you, uh, you share things. So you're not 
barking ag- angry words on social media, but you sending out um, uplifting words. And I really like that, that you're using it in the way I think social media should be used. Um, if I could come back briefly to my relay race metaphor, it's clear that throughout your life's journey, and we spoke about this a bit before, uh, you've both received and passed on batons. You've um, sought out mentors and you've mentored others. Um, and the process of mentorship is clearly something central in your magic formula. Uh, can you speak a bit about mentorship? And in your experience, how does someone find a mentor? How, and uh, how do you find mentees? How do you find people to mentor yourself? And how should mentors and mentees work together? So uh, from your uh, very wide experience of mentorship on both sides, uh, what do you think about the process of mentorship? Yeah, very. Uh, so where, where I will start, I will start with uh, me, uh, I think when I was in my 30s, trying to figure out why why am I here? <laughs> you know, I, I'm here alive today. Wh- why am I here? Wh- what's the whole point of me being in this life? You know, and 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 that's where I, I began to try to figure out what my purpose is. Uh, and and I can tell you, probably it's not perfect. You know. I, but I came out with what, why I think I am here. You know? uh, it links to the whole, your whole comment around social media. What, what is it that I say in social media? It links back to the mentorship. It links back to me writing the book. You know, uh, it, it goes to. I, I think I am here to, to, to awaken. You know the giant that is within many, in fact, all of us, you know, all of us as human beings, we, we are, many of us, we look to the Mandela's, we look to, you know, the Barack Obama's, we look to um, so many other great leaders, uh, Gandhi, uh, we, we, we see, but we, what we don't realize that we have those in us, you know, we have greatness in all of us. And and it is I think my little contribution would be to try and, and encourage people to look deep inside themselves and find their Mandela's within themselves, you know, and and find the things that that because we cannot be put in this life, uh, we are put in this life with all the tools that we need for us to be successful, you know. Uh, let me not try and be somebody else. You know, I chose to be black before I was born. So why now would I feel it is a problem uh, to, for me to be black? I need to embrace my blackness. You know, I'm just using that as an example. You know, so we have what it takes. We have everything that we need in order for us to be successful. Uh, it's really going. It's about the choices that one makes. It's about being conscious uh, when it comes to those choices. And many of us are walking around in this life without being conscious. And then we see all of these consequences coming up and uh, we blame everybody else when in reality, you know, we need to just look at 
the things that we choose to do you know so it is it is my uh, my mission <laughs> to try to try and 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 just you know remind people that they've got this greatness within themselves and hence the the tone of my tweets uh, very much along along those lines and uh, it's also what I do when it comes to mentorship, you know, uh, is sitting down with people, uh, asking them questions, but guiding them in such a way that they find solutions within themselves. You know? uh, but you ask, how do you find each other? Uh, what is frustrating for me, in my experience, is, is people reaching out to me and saying that they want me to mentor them, for example only to find that that's not what they are really looking for. What they are looking for is a quick way of getting into the company that I'm in and to senior positions. <laughs> that's different from coming and saying, help me, help me where I am. I don't want to come to your company, but I want to be great where I am. You know, So many people that I encounter are people, the first group of people who just want to climb up the ladder a quick route and 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 it's very important that you identify those people up front and 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 not even invest any time uh, with them or you know, guide them but tell them maybe you need to somebody different but uh, don't invest i don't invest any time in them. so i've got this process that looks at the values of the person who spend the time you know the first session is very much about uh, looking at the values of the other person interestingly uh, barry and karen not many people have reflected on on their values when i say i've got four values uh, and say, what are your values? Um, I ask the question. You, you realize that you know people have not even thought about this. <laughs> uh, to me, values are like the software. It's like the software. You can have all of the hardware, but the software that you need, you know, the thing that helps you to be the, the kind of person that you are, is the values because they define. It's the beliefs. They define who and the kind of things that you do. Your choices. It's your values. If 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 now you are walking around with values that are not necessarily going to be taking you to where you need to be, just because you were born in an environment and inherited those values, you have not changed them. You are walking around with default settings. You have not changed those settings to suit you. You have a problem. You know, we so this is what I, I I picked up. So I guide people through through some of that. Uh, identify if there is an alignment of values. Then then I take the person. Also I also ask, you know, after a year or two or, or three of being on this, where do you want to be? And and if I find out that you know where the person wants to be, I don't necessarily think I can help with that. Uh, I point them to other people who may help them, uh, but uh, but I upfront I, I let them know that I'm not going to be able to help. So then those people that that end up being part of the of the of the mentorship process, we what we then do we have a, 
each year we come up with clear goals that where we want to be and we take a checkpoint you know after each year we ask, assess where we are and uh, we also decide uh, you know do you want to graduate now <laughs> you know maybe you go to other people or you, are you still comfortable for us to you know continue you know and in many instances uh, people felt that you know what i i got what i wanted after two or three years others say no let us continue to walk this journey together and we walk that journey and i think people should uh, look for people that uh, the mentees should look for people that can they can you know they can look up to people who who are possible in the spaces that are interested in uh, and that is what is important you know and you don't go and look for people that uh, uh, that are not role models to you i'm i'm kind of curious you spoke a lot about values and you need to be pretty upfront and and clear on what your values are when you're getting into a mentorship relationship and i want to know if you think like you need to know what your values are before you go out and find a mentor or whether you think or have experienced that being a little bit unclear as to what your values are right now but wanting to sort of learn and unpack that with a mentor is something that that can work um yeah yeah karen that's a, that's a good question uh, what what have what I've realized is that uh, most people have not figured out what their values are, and and there's nothing wrong with that. It's just that they haven't, you know. And and we uh, we use the the first two or three sessions to to kind of like get the person to be much more clear and and identify what his or her values are, you know. And and it takes two or three sessions. Uh, to get to that point. Uh, in the first session, the person would uh, top of his or him uh, had said, oh, okay, it is this, 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 and this. But after, you know, after thinking through, after thinking about it, uh, we'll come back the next session, and, oh, you know, uh, no, I think, you know, then you start to refine them and coming up and you question the person, you question and push the person and and then they get to what their core values are. And and that process, I see that process also part of a growth process. You know, that's why I do it, uh, do it as part of the, the mentorship relationship, because just going through that, there's so much learning about yourself. You know, uh, there's so much uh, learning about, uh, you know, oh, I can understand I am doing this, but the reason why I'm doing this is, is because of this value. And and, and and many, I'm just going to, uh, sorry to be going back to issues of race, uh, but respect uh, is probably a, a value that many African uh, even maybe Eastern cultures have, you know, respect. But with that comes a problem where people, their interpretation of that respect is, it, 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 may, it freezes them. They are unable to question authority. They are unable to ask things. When in a meeting, you don't ask questions. You know, you are going, you're living, you don't know. But, you know, uh, when people are doing the wrong things to you, you don't, you don't, you know, you're not asserting yourself. Uh, all in the name of this value thing called respect. 
you know so when we start to go deep in in that space people start to understand how these things affect the rest of who they are and how yes you continue to embrace this but bring something else uh, in order for you to climb up the ladder in an organization, uh, people are not mind readers. So if you are just quiet, you know, just quiet, it may be something that's valued in terms of your culture, uh, but it may not be something that helps you to be seen in this environment, this corporate environment. When you start to go through all of that, uh, then you can, people can see, then connect the dots, and then you unlock that, you unlock, you, you, you help them in many parts of their lives. So, so yeah, values are, are so important. And, and values are the things also that I lead with. I go to any organization, uh, like here in, in, in Altron, we came up with a new set of values. Uh, we are a values-based company, and, and that helps us a lot. And those values, we just did not sit as, as XCO, and they came up with a, a list of uh, five or six values. Uh, they were, it, we engaged the teams, we engaged the entire uh, workforce, and, and, and then came up with things that are true. Uh, in our case, uh, we're coming up with things that are reflecting both the things that we are good at as a company and the things that we aspire to be. You know, when we have, we talk about a value of uh, a value of diversity and inclusion, saying we embrace diversity and inclusion. It's not that we ha we we are the best in that. In fact, we are we were the, the we're not so good. We're not good at all in that three and four years ago as Ultron, uh, but we have moved a long way now. Uh, because it's something that we are driving consciously, is something that we, you know, we're working on. Uh, we aspire to be that company that is uh, uh, welcoming everybody, not just we don't want to be a homeland, nor do we want to be a folk start. You know, we want to be a truly South African company. Uh, when we talk about openness, honesty, and integrity within that one value of openness, honesty, and integrity. It's a combination of the things that we are good at, and they were very clear to me, uh, to us as leadership, uh, our employees, that, that uh, during the times when the company was going through difficult times, they only heard about this thing, the issues in the media. We as managers, we did not share that the company was in trouble. They said, you guys are not open. You're not transparent. In fact, you are not honest with us. So when you see this value of openness, honesty, and integrity, it's a value that's capturing, saying, hey, we need to be open. You know, whatever we do, COVID-19, you know, the state of the business, we need to share with our employees. We cannot hide information from them. You know, so is that is it is something that is so important and is helping us a lot to deal with the many challenges that any business is facing. Our set of values, the same at a personal level, is the same at a at a at an organizational level. Maybe our younger listeners don't know what you and I know, and that is what sort of company Altron was in the past and. Uh, because the uh, changes you're talking about are, are are really radical in terms of of the company that was and the company that you've built. 
So could you just maybe speak a bit about the the company Altron and uh, some of its history so people understand where this all fits in? Yeah, Perry. Uh, so maybe let me start when, when I was approached uh, for this role, I was the, the CEO of MTN South Africa. So it's a big, it, I mean, it's a business that is doing about 40 billion rand of, uh, of revenue. So it's, it's a large uh, business. And, and here you are being asked to go and run a, a at the time it was like a 12 billion rand uh, company and that nobody really of this generation knew much about. Uh, it used to be a company that was uh, uh, quite a prominent company, uh, highly res respected many years ago, but it went through difficult times. Uh, it was a company that uh, from uh, it was also aligned to to uh, I guess the, the apartheid government, you know, uh, in many ways, like many other South African companies. Uh, when it came to the time of uh, international sanctions against South Africa uh, and when multinational companies left South Africa, we came in. Uh, we were that company that said, hey, we are, this com we, you know, we are going to make South Africa work. You know, a Buramaka plan. You know, we are going to make a plan uh, to come up with substitute products. We attracted people that get things done. You know, people that were very, very much uh, passionate about that old South Africa. So that's the kind of company that I'm talking about. A, a largely Afrikaner culture at the top of the business. Uh, you could hardly find a female. In, uh, it was Afrikaner and uh, technical. Uh, it was technical people. And, and it was based on, uh, uh, on small entities that were independently run. Uh, these uh, divisions we had uh, Altec, we had Bytes, we have uh, uh, you, you had uh, PowerTech. Different units, each one of them having their own leader, doing their own thing. You know, and the role of the head office was largely to consolidate the numbers and report it to the market. That was the role of the head office. Clearly. That is not something that I was going to do. <laughs> Our role is just to consolidate the numbers and, and report to the market. What attracted me to this company uh, is first uh, uh, is the kind of assets that they have. Unlike many other South African companies, here you had a company that developed technology locally. Instead of selling IP that has been developed by Microsoft and everybody else. Here you have a company almost half, just over half of its profits and revenue were made from technology that was developed here locally. Uh, for example, we built uh, recently, we announced a partnership with Toyota, you know, and, and, and this uh, device that we have built here in South Africa for Toyota is now approved uh, as a part uh, the part of Toyota globally and it's now going to be used globally. That's the ability of this company. You have people who in their DNA, they make things happen, you know. Uh, uh, 
So that is what we have. So that that's what attracted me. Here you've got a company that has got so much potential, and yet it was under the radar because of, unfortunately, the past. You know, they were so afraid of coming out, and and then you hear another narrative, uh, uh, Barry and Karen. Another narrative coming from some political in the political circles saying that these kind of companies. And people call them white monopoly capital. These kind of companies are supposed to be destroyed. You know, we need to get rid of these companies, hmm? destroy them. <laughs> uh, I think that's short-sighted. So, so looking at that, I felt that you know, this year I've got an opportunity to work with this team in this company, this new company, work with them, make them to be relevant in the new South Africa and make it a company that people can be proud of, make it as a company that is welcoming everybody, not just a specific uh, race groups within, within its circles, in particular in leadership positions, you know, and make it a company that is uh, not just a technical company, but its solutions are talking to the challenges that our customers are facing. So this company must be external, uh, must have an external orientation versus being inwardly looking. And all of that, that's a culture change, you know. And I wanted to, 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 to demonstrate that instead of, you know, trying to cut this pie, we can make this pie bigger. By making the pie bigger, you are actually bringing even more people and you're transforming the organization. But you're not cutting something that is shrinking. You're growing the pie, growing, continuing to grow the pie. And, and having people from different backgrounds working together towards one common objective of growing this this cake you know and and that is what we have been doing over the last four years me and my leadership team together with uh, 8500 of our employees you know trying to build uh, this entity that uh, that can be seen as a microcosm of the kind of south africa we want to live in a South Africa where everybody feels welcome. You know, it's not just a South Africa for for black people like me. A South Africa for everybody. You know, as a, build a company that is able to to develop technology that can be exported. You know, because through that, that's where that's how we create jobs. You know, and 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 that is what we have to be doing. You know. But you do that if you are connected to what the customers are looking for, you know, looking at the pain of the customers. So in the case of Toyota, what they're looking at, they were looking for is a solution that's able to uh, communicate back to Toyota the health of a car, you know. When you buy a car, you leave and, and then it comes back after, I don't know, 20,000 kilometers in between, they have no clue what's happening in that car. You know, they wanted to have something that permanently is communicating back the status, the health of the car. While at the same time, is also providing and making the car a, a, a Wi-Fi hotspot. So those are the two capabilities that we're giving Toyota. You know, so when you bring the car for a service, they already know what is required. They don't have to over-service the car, you know. They they know what which spares to order, you know, and they can reduce 
the amount of inventory that they keep because they they can see the demand coming through because of these cars that are in the field communicating back to Toyota and that's the technology that was developed here uh, and I'm proud of that you know and there's many of the of such kind of things that uh, that Altron is doing you know. last year you spoke at a conference that I went to and I heard you speak about your the changes you were making at Altron. And um, I like what you say about it being a sort of microcosm of South Africa. And I think that's such an inspiring story because you've taken an old South Africa company and you're shaping it into the kind of new South Africa company that we should all be aspiring to. So uh, I kind of really like that story. And I love the fact that you've gone to Altron and you're working there. So it, uh, you know, it must have been uh, quite a hard decision to move from a huge company like MTN to something much smaller. But I'm so pleased you did that. Um, could I just um, um, change the subject a little bit? And um, and it's um, a topic that I know we could speak for the next ten hours. And if we could just briefly, but it's quite important. Um, I know both you and I are deeply interested in the South African and the African ICT sector in general, and in ICT skills in particular. And uh, while you were at Microsoft, you made a huge contribution and took a great deal of interest in skills development. Could you speak about how you see ICT skills at the moment? Hey, Perry, it is sad, you know, it's sad where we are as a country when it comes to ICT skills. Uh, I know Karen, she is in uh, working for APSA. And if we were to go to APSA today and look at uh, the vacancies that they have in the IT space, in particular in, this, in the field that she's in, uh, you'll find that there's so many uh, data scientists that they are looking for and such kind of people that they just cannot find. Uh, in, in the market. They cannot find in the market because our system, our education system does not produce them, you know, or it is produced just a few of them. Uh, it goes all the way to, you know, uh, the education system in, in, in primary and also secondary education, where many of, of the people, uh, many of, uh, you know, the students are not choosing STEM kind of uh, subjects. So we are sitting in an environment where there is such a huge requirement of skills on the one hand, <laughs> of technical skills, but on the other hand, you've got this huge, uh, we're sitting with almost 50% of our youth being unemployed and many of those uh, young people are many of them are, are graduates so you just do not say what is going on how can i have this level of unemployment uh, when i've got so much skill shortage you know it's just something that that just i don't understand and of course it's understandable because we've got people that have been produced by this system and and and, and the people that are being produced are not necessarily what the market uh, is, is looking for so what is required here is that we need to, as organization, 
accept that as a reality. Of course, we need to influence government, uh, but we need to also accept that this is the reality of South Africa for now. Uh, we cannot just let things be the way they are uh, and continue to be complaining that there is a shortage of skills. We need to figure out how, how to do this, uh, how to produce the skills that we have with the people that we have. You know, you have been dealt a, a, a bad hand. Yes, it is a bad hand, but hey, make use of that hand. You know, we've got these people that have been produced. How can we use the people that we have? Uh, our approach then at Microsoft and even today uh, in Altron was to go and identify some of these unemployed graduates and give them some basic stuff, uh, training in specific areas. And what was interesting for us is that after a 6 to 12 months intervention, you take most graduates, you give them this uh, basic uh, intervention of exposing them to uh, technical uh, subjects, uh, in particular in the ICT space. Uh, after after that six to twelve months intervention, we find that most of these people met the minimum requirement of most organizations, and they were absorbed by our channel and by us as Microsoft. And that was interesting. Here are people who are sitting unemployed. And all you require was a 6 to 12 months intervention. And yes, you're not going to place all of them, but you were able to place at least 80% of them. And you're placing 80%. And the, each and every one of those people are supporting maybe four or five family members. So they're making a difference. At the same time, they are contributing to the development of, of our economy, you know, because they are filling some gaps there that are, that are needed. So that is what I think is required. It's, it's not just one thing. It's also us accepting as leaders that this is the case, and we are going to do something about it. Whilst at the same time, we are putting the pressure on, on, on education institutions to start to produce the kind of, of skills that this country needs. But to get there is going to take a long time. It's not just something that we can do overnight. That's why I'm saying we just need to make do with what we have. And, and, and in doing that, you'll be doing the, uh, the right thing. <laughs> doing, uh, we'll be doing good whilst also doing a good business. You know, that is what we need to be doing as managers. But we are in a challenging situation here in South Africa. Uh, by the way, uh, there is also this thinking that fourth industrial revolution, uh, I, I, I hardly use that word, but uh, that fourth industrial revolution is, uh, is, is going to be taking away jobs and it's going you know, of course, we know that this is the fourth one. There must have been a third, and a second, and a first one. In each and every one of these revolutions, we have seen exactly the opposite, that even more jobs are created, you know, and there's not going to be any different now, you know, but those jobs are different jobs, you know, talking cloud, we're talking AI, or talking uh, data science, we're talking all of these kind of jobs that, that, that are going to be coming up. But, the, but we also... When you look at how digital platforms are transforming things, uh, we did not have Uber only 
10, 10 years ago, we did not have any of that. So we had the drivers walking around here being unemployed. Hmm? Walking around. Here is a low-level skilled job called a driver. Going around unemployed. Boom, you come with an Uber platform that has made those people now, just over 20,000 of them in South Africa, uh, are now employed. Thanks to fourth industrial, you know, thanks to digitization, uh, and, and those platforms have created these jobs. The same thing with uh, we've seen. Why can't you use the same thinking when it comes to the plumbers, uh, making those plumbers available, or the painters, all of these people who sitting around carrying all of these boards, using our platforms, our technology to make them to be accessible to the people who need them. You know, so that's the kind of thinking that uh, we should be doing uh, more of. Uh, how do we use the resources that we have, but leveraging, leveraging the technology, but use these semi-skilled people and make them to be useful and productive in terms of society? <laughs> So I'm, I'm also not a big fan of the term, you know, 4IR or the fourth industrial revolution. Um, but I am curious to understand, and you've also admitted that, you know, the first step is kind of to just admit the fact that we've been dealt a really bad hand and it's going to take a long time to kind of, you know, fix things and make, th and make things better. And maybe that's daunting in and of itself and why people don't want to do it. But I want to understand a little bit more um, sort of what you think corporate should do in terms of kind of producing these 4IR skills? Like, do you think it's corporate should be more actively involved in, in learnerships or providing bursaries or, or something like that? Um, yeah, what are your thoughts? Yeah, you're asking about uh, what is the role of corporates in terms of uh, developing the skills that, that this economy uh, requires. Uh, should we just be sitting and complaining about things or should, is there something that we corporates can do uh, exactly that's I'm it. saying I'm saying there's something that we can do you know each and every country has got its own challenges if you are in China or India you may not be facing skills challenge you may be facing something else but corporates operating in those environments they they figure out how to sort out things you know so i would say the first thing is that we all uh, contribute to something called a skills levy every month we pay a percentage of our uh, wage bill to these sitters and this money goes in there the question is what happens to this money <laughs> Because we are, and this man was supposed to help address skills, but it's just disappearing into this black hole. So we need to start holding the government accountable. We need to start holding these institutions accountable. You know, yes, how do we take charge of this 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 contribution that we're making? Now it's being used for the purpose it was never intended for. So we want to make sure that the CETA that is aligned to our industry, it is working for that industry in its producing the skills. And together with the institutions, 
that are that are there we work together to make sure that we are able to train people you know send people to these institutions but using and leveraging the funds that are there we are contributing this fund every month we're contributing this you know so this lack of accountability or us as as citizens not holding our government accountable it's a problem you know the thing of thinking that yes i'm corporate i cannot i cannot demand things because uh, uh, i would like at some point to get some government tenders if i open my mouth i'm not going to be getting those government tenders it's not helping it's not helping anybody we have a voice we that's the money that was intended for skills development and it's not being used for that why are we not having that discussion at a sector level so that's the first thing I think uh, in a small scale, uh, we as companies need to have graduate programs. Uh, we, I was, I'm a beneficiary of that. You know, how I was supported, as I've indicated, uh, by by Afrox, and uh, there's no way that I could be working for a company and not have a program like that. So in Altron, we build a program just to, to address graduates, you know, and, and we have people are out there in universities that are, we're paying for, and that each and every company must have that, must have that. And as part of this thing called BEE, you know, BEE is a scorecard. It's a scorecard, and one of the elements of that scorecard is skills development, in particular skills related to black, Indian, and, and colored within your organization in order for your company, any company to get certain points, uh, it needs to meet at least those men. Let us comply with that. What is the problem? Why can't we just train people? How can it be so wrong to train people? <laughs> you know, why do you have to be forced by anybody to train people? So as companies, that is our responsibility just to comply with the laws of the country. You know, uh, we didn't even need to have laws. You, know, you are you, you are investing in yourself. We know that. We know as business people, if you are investing in your own employees, you are investing in yourself. You know? And that's what you we need to be doing. Why now, when it comes to this specific thing, we are not doing it. So. So I think we've got a number of levers that we are not pulling, uh, but the big one is let's make sure that the, the, the money that we collect each and every month around skills levy, it is used in the sectors that it was intended for and for the purpose that it, was, it is being collected for. Thank you. That's, um, and I couldn't agree with you more. I think that the BEE architecture is brilliant, but its implementation has a lot to be sorted out. And I think that if we could use the the um, scorecard to its full potential, we'd see amazing things happen. Um, I was going to ask you a whole lot more, but I think we 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 coming to an end, and I'd like to just come back to uh, this relay race metaphor. And I'm guessing Kieran is about the um, same age as your daughter. And when you speak to your daughter or to Kieran or to others of her generation and to people who are passionate about a future in the digital economy, what is the baton that you would pass on to them? What words of advice 
apart from read my book, which I think you should say, uh, can you give to Karen and to people in that age group? Maybe two or three things, uh, Barry. Uh, I think the first one is uh, there is this thing, and it's not linked to her generation, but it comes from uh, you know from our past where we expecting to get a job. You know, uh, somebody needs to create a job for us. Uh, unfortunately. We are in a world now where we need to be thinking how to create jobs, you know, not, you know, which company am I going to work for uh, that will know. And, and how do you do that? Uh, how do you create jobs? How do you, you, do, you know, yes, I, I hear people say, hey, um, I, I've got this intention of creating jobs. Uh, I, I never, we need to be honest. It needs to be something more than just, you know, I want to create jobs. You must be solving a, special, a particular societal problem, you know. You must be solving that problem. As you solve that problem, uh, you know, as a byproduct of that, then jobs become cre are created. We are living in a society in South Africa. We are living in this society where there are so many problems. We are blessed because we've got so many problems, which means we can create enterprises to solve these problems. I'm going to make an example. Uh, one example being, uh, you show you know this small company called Capitec. Uh, uh, anyway, it's not so small anymore. Now, uh, it's a company that is, uh, <laughs> it entered a space it entered a space that was dominated by very large banks you know one of them being apsa the standard bank and others you know they never went to government and say hey government can you please help us create a space for capitec in this in in the in the financial services sector you know uh, because we've got all of these big players that we cannot compete with they never did that what they did was to look at what are the needs that are not being fulfilled in this space. And they went about to create a company to go and, and fulfill those needs. And, and here you have now a company that is very, very big and continues to grow and, uh, and, 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 and employing thousands and thousands of people. What is it that they did? They looked at a black problem. Because ultimately, largely, at the core of their initial value proposition was to address a black problem, you know. Uh, and, and they came up with something so brilliant that addressed that, and here you are now, you know. So, so what I'm saying, there are many such problems. Here you have RAIN, this company called RAIN, you know, <laughs> also now employing hundreds of people. Uh, it's, it's being valued in billions. They entered a space that everybody said thought nobody would enter that space uh, because of the powerful players that are in there, being Vodacom and MTN. Now you have rain, and they are doing a great job. They're delivering niche. It's a niche space, but they're delivering brilliant service, and they are growing. So there are many of such problems. Uh, 
and let's find those problems and go sort them in the process in the process of fixing or solving those problems we are going to come up with uh, with, uh, with with solutions and, and those solutions as a, as a byproduct of that we will be able to create jobs so i would say that we need to have a mindset of not being employed but a mindset of going out to uh, find a way of, uh, of of creating our own companies, uh, our own. It could be a small company, it could be a two or three person company. It doesn't matter, you know. Now we've got the we've got the internet. You know, you, you can through that uh, multiply yourself. You may appear to be a big player when you at the, at, behind this thing. You only have two people or one person. So we're living in that world. Uh, so that's the first thing but also try to do something meaningful that would be my second contribution try to their generation is a generation that is that has got a heart you know and there are so many challenges that are out there uh, find your own little mission and go and do something that talks to who you are you know don't try and you know follow you know whatever the pressure they connect with who you are who am i you know and try and do the things that talk to you uh, if i were to look at myself you know i'm a morning person hmm? as a morning person uh, my most of my meetings uh, i have morning meetings <laughs> uh, with uh, with clients uh, i don't i don't have uh, dinner meeting with clients how can you as a ceo not have dinner i hardly have dinner meetings because because that that's not me i'm a morning person i'm the best in the morning so uh, so i design my life to align with who i am so connect with who you are because in that space you just flow you know it's like you're riding a wave you don't have to spend too much energy you know i do what i call round table discussions with my team uh, those round table discussion i sit there for two hours listening listening to what where where do where do they think uh, wish what are the things that they think we should do as a company to to deliver better service to our customers you know what are the things that they believe we need to improve on so i listen i listen but in that listening because i'm a quiet person it comes natural it's not a pain it's not a job to me to to, to, to be listening for to them it's not like i'm waiting a next day oh when is he ever going to stop when is this employee ever going to stop so that i can put my word in no I'm comfortable. So I'm looking for things that come natural. And in those spaces, the things that come natural, in those spaces, uh, you are going to be your best because it comes natural. You know? And there is not going to be any stress. You're not going to be stressed again because it comes natural. But look for, look for those opportunities. Leverage who you are. That's why then the last point is so important this thing i've already mentioned self-awareness what are the things that you are good at and what are the things that you are not good at and and and, and the last point here there people ask me why are you not you know working you know why not running your own company hey it's because i know myself <laughs> you know, 
because I know uh, and uh, I come from an environment I know my mother she was an entrepreneur and uh, the kind of things that she she had to go through you know it was good for her but not for me you know so uh, I'm good at what I'm doing in taking other people's organizations and making those organizations great you know that's where I would like to be so connect with the things that that talk to who you are you know so those will be the three things that uh, that I would say they must do very yeah I'm I'm really uh, yeah consistently just like impressed at like your ability to like frame things that are pretty like convoluted and dense and just make them like small and relatable um but yeah I guess so I really also appreciated kind of like the honesty you offered at the end, which is like, you know, people ask you like, okay, well, why aren't you also, you know, doing the entrepreneurship thing? Why don't you just, you know, start your own own gig? And, and you know for yourself, like, that's not necessarily something that works well for you. Um, but instead, like, a different kind of, like, collaborative working style is something that, that suits you. Um, and that's exactly how I feel, because I often hear people like my age mates who are like, yeah, you know, uh, companies suck and they underpay everyone. And so you should just be your own boss. And there's very limited thinking around like, okay, but are you going to, you know, do the same thing to your employees? Are you going to, <laughs> you know, underpay them? Are you, are you just trying to perpetuate the cycle? Uh, what, what's, what's going on? What is your actual motivation for wanting to start something uh, of your, you know, but by yourself? Um, so yeah, I think I really appreciated that. And I think there's a way in which you can almost do both, which is you can work with someone, you can also be your own boss uh, in, in other sort of side projects and stuff like that so yeah i think that was a really really nice way of kind of phrasing it um so yeah i really appreciate it um uh, just in closing and um i've spoken quite a lot about your book Mteta, and i spent last weekend reading it i really enjoyed it so congratulations on the book it's called betting on a darkie and um tell us just a little bit about the book and how it's been received Oh, thank you, Perry. Uh, the book has been is well received by South Africans, and in fact, uh, even beyond South Africa. If you go to uh, Goodreads, uh, you will see that uh, a number of people in the UK, in the US, who have read it and and rated it. Uh, you know, so it's just it just resonates with so many people. Uh, it it was designed for that, and the way the way I you know. Why did I even write a book? I'm a private person, very, very private. You know, my family is private as well. So I was not trying to put my name out there. Uh, it's linked to my purpose that I've already spoke to you about. Uh, of, you know, I found that I just cannot scale myself. There's so much demand for people who want uh, to be mentored. And uh, so I felt that, you know, through writing a book, I need to, I, I can possibly scale myself, uh, but uh, one of the conditions that was required was honesty. You know, we, we had, I had, I had to be absolutely honest about the fail, the failures, uh, the mistakes that have made, you know, everything. And, and you see, and also bring people that, that can share some aspects of you that you do not, uh, you know, you may not be aware of or, or may not be comfortable yourself talking about, but you, you let them talk about those things for you, being open through them, you know, and, 
and and that is that is what I did. And and inter it's, interestingly, it's been well received. And if you get over the title of the book, you realize that actually it's not scary. <laughs> it's actually a a great book. And, and it's now it's reached its uh, it's the fourth print. Uh, I remember my publishers said that. Uh, uh, you know, they will print 5,000 copies uh, just in August last year when we were launching it. And said it usually take uh, maybe a year or two to to <laughs> to sell 5,000 copies. And that's why I, I I never realized that we we are a nation that does not read. You know, 5,000. And when you reach 5,000, it's like you are a, a bestseller in South Africa. So so that to me it was shocking to hear that. And uh, thank God it's it's not been like that with my book. It's the fourth print now, so so really doing very well. And <clears throat> and uh, this month, actually month of month of September, uh, exclusive books have chosen it as one of its twenty books of twenty twenty. You know, uh, it's one of only three books from South Africa out of that list of 20 you know so so um and it's not like they're doing me a favor it's because of of how it's going in their book in their in their bookstore so if there's no affirmative action there uh, or, or bee there's no such a thing so uh, i'm pleased and uh, i thank all south africans for for helping uh, for receiving this message well uh, i'm i'm pleased yeah, yeah. So uh, thank you and congratulations. It's really, and um, uh, just to say, my copy isn't a printed one. I actually bought it on Kindle. So oh. people that uh, prefer to read on Kindle, it's available on Kindle and it's a good read. So Mteta, we will end it there. Thank you so much for being part of this. I just have to say in this um, season of my podcast, I'll be speaking to quite a few people you mentioned in your book. It's quite an incestuous industry we're in. So I'll be speaking to Mark Harris. I'll be speaking to Kathy Smith. Uh, uh, Cliff DeWitt, who worked with you at Microsoft, will be one of my guests. So it is, um, we're keeping it in the family. And thank you so much for participating. Thank you so much, Barry, and thank you, Karen, for, for all of your great questions. Yeah, thank you. This was, this was amazing. I was texting my friend group earlier, just being like, oh my gosh, guys, like, guess who I'm going to be chatting to tonight? And they were like, oh my gosh. And one of them had literally like, bought their dad uh, your book for Father's Day. So they were like, oh, that's so dope. So this has just been a really, really wonderful experience. And thank you uh, for just being so honest and so great in this chat. Thank you. This podcast is a Grand Geeks production. It is produced by Professor Barry Dwalatsky and edited by Evan Wigdorowitz. It is presented by Professor Barry Dwalatsky and Karen Gammy. Music is done by Callum Cool and logo designed by Evan Wigdorowitz. The companion website is at www.softwareengineer.org.za.